want to take you to the Hundred Acre Wood and to our friends, our old, old friends, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, Owl, Gopher, Christopher Robin, and lest I forget my favorite, Eeyore. I'll get to him in a minute. Eeyore, that perpetually pessimistic, that continually gloomy, that sadly depressed old fellow. Do you know who he is? He's the, the stuffed donkey, that little old gray stuffed donkey. Let me share with you some quotes that have been uttered from his thistle-filled mouth. Some of the words of our friend Eeyore. It's not much of a tale, but I'm sort of attached to it. Thanks for noticing me. Sure is a cheerful color. Guess I'll have to get used to it. My favorite, whoever that Tigger fan was. The most wonderful thing about Tiggers is that you're the only one. <laughs> well, Eeyore is a, uh, he's quite a literary figure, really is. Um, he's one to be thought about, one to be considered, cherished, I suppose. He also has a lousy outlook on life, if we're honest, if we're honest. And just thinking about it for just, just a moment, you have to say that that little towered donkey has a lousy outlook on life. And in fact, the way he sees things, the way the grid through which he engages with life is anything but what is appropriate for a disciple of Jesus. Eeyore's outlook on life, that glass half empty, the perpetually pessimistic, the continually gloomy, is completely antithetical to the Christian life. Not when we understand who it is we're following. The reigning, ruling King Jesus. We're now in, uh, entering into part two of a two-part series in the book of Joel. So if you're trying to figure out where we're going in the next few minutes, that's where we are. The book of Joel, the text is going to be on the screen there uh, behind me, or in front of me, front of me behind, behind, I don't know. Anyway, it's somewhere here. Um, there are pew Bibles there in front of you if you'd like to, to get one of those, or chair Bibles. We don't really have pews. They're chair Bibles. Um, uh, Joel, as I was saying last week, is one of the minor prophets. That doesn't mean he was short. It just means that the, the minor prophets, those are the shorter ones uh, there in the, in the Old Testament. Um, last week, we were, the, the theme was the need to repent given that the day of the Lord is near. That theme is still there here in the second half of the book of Joel, but it's, it goes the other way. We need to rejoice for the day of the Lord is near. Same book, same book, same author, the same theme. It's a, it's a long reading, I'll grant you that. Uh, Joel 2, verses 18, starting verse 18 through chapter 3, the end of the book, uh, verse 21. But we need to read it, and we're going to here in just a few minutes. I want to prompt you, if I may, uh, to be alert for three themes as we're reading it. Since it's a longer reading, I thought it might be helpful to just kind of give you some, some landmarks, things to be looking for as we're moving through the text. So the first is the theme of God's judgment on his enemies. 
The second thing is his renewal of his creation. And the third thing is his presence with his people. So judgment, renewal, and presence. Judgment, renewal, and presence. We're going to see all three here in the text, and all three are great cause for rejoicing. We'll unpack that in a minute. Let's, let's start with the text, though. Joel chapter 2, verse 18. Hear now God's word. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. A threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. 
Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and bring yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and, all the, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, thank you for recording this for us. Thank you for this, these few minutes that we have here uh, to consider these extraordinary proclamations from you at that time that certainly had implications for the people in that time, but they do still for us, and we ask that you give us ears to hear, help us to see the abundant reasons that we have to rejoice, for we are your people. Amen. So the day of the Lord, as I was saying uh, last week, alluding to already just a few moments ago, the day of the Lord is the theme in the book of Joel. It means not only that once for all final day at the end of history, but it is also referring to those ongoing continual visitations of the Lord as he comes to engage and intercede and interrupt the affairs of this sinful world. Because of that, it has a double meaning. Uh, It has a double meaning. It has a the, the day of the Lord and its coming, the once for all and the ongoing continual, has a double meaning, a different inf- impact, a different effect, depending on where you are as it comes. You say, how can that be? Let me explain. Imagine that you are in Germany towards the end of World War II. We'll say it's uh, winter, spring, 1945. And the news is spreading that the Allies are about to take Berlin. Now, how does that news land on you? Well, it depends on where you are. It depends on who you are. If you're an ally POW or a prisoner in a concentration camp, then that's cause for celebration, right? But that same news, if you are a German soldier or worse, a member of the Nazi party, that news that Berlin is about to fall is going to land on you in a completely different way. It's the exact same news, 
But it depends, how it lands on you depends on where you are. It's the same thing with the news of the day of the Lord. How it lands on you depends on where you are. Now, last week we were talking about how, and that was the emphasis of the, really the first half of the book, that the day of the Lord is a message of judgment and the need for repentance. But the focus, the emphasis shifts the more you keep reading. And once you come to see what we've just, the text we just uh, were, were listening to a moment ago, is that that same day is also a day of salvation and a call for rejoicing. It can be, it can well be, though for some it is a day of destruction, for others it can be a day of deliverance, a day of salvation. Far as the curse is found, a salvation that is come and fulfilled in the full by the mission of the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. Jesus. And if we have embraced that news, whoever you are, whoever you may be, wherever you are, wherever you may be, when you embrace that news, when you are made and have, having embraced it, when you are made one, with this one who has lived and died in your behalf, the floodgates of eternal, infinite, and unshakable provision and blessing are open for you. It's a floodgate. And the prophet, Joel, is speaking to that right here in these three chapters and in the one and a half that we just read a moment ago. Now, how? What, are, what really are the causes for this response of rejoicing to the news that the day of the Lord is near? Well, that's why I prompted you earlier. Those three things I prompted you with earlier before we start reading the text, that's the three points. It's where we're going now, okay? So the first cause for rejoicing that we have is the news that God's judgment is coming on his enemies. The second reason for our rejoicing with the news that the day of the Lord is near is the reality that God's renewal of his creation is coming. And the third reason for our rejoicing with the news that the day of the Lord is near is the assurance, the promise, the reality of his presence with his people. Any one of those is a sermon and cause for our rejoicing. These are three quick points and one short sermon. Here we go. The first two are gonna be shorter than the third. Uh, I want to delve in just a little bit more into that one. So God's judgment on his enemies is good news. It is good news. It is a call for rejoicing among his people. How so? Let's think about that. What was coming? What was coming? What is Joel speaking of here? He is speaking of a reversal, a reversal of all that the people of God, Israel, Jer Jerusalem, Judah, had experienced up to that time. The coming of, of the, the locusts, the hopper, and all of that, and then the armies themselves. That was what we looked at last week. A reversal. A, 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 the just due coming upon the nations around them for what it was that they had done. So that was what was coming, this reversal, this just due. Why was it coming? Because of the immoral stupor, the uh, willful blindness and rebellion of those peoples. More specifically, Joel speaks to it here in our text this morning, the crass immorality and cruel injustices against the vulnerable, against fellow image bearers. And the Lord will not have it. 
And so justice will come down. That's why it was coming. And this is good news. It was good news then, and it is good news also even recognizing that that judgment in that time, horrific as it was, was pointing to an even greater day of the Lord, a greater judgment, a cosmic judgment that is coming, and that too is good news and even better news. And you say, how in the world is eternal punishment, hell, good news? Good question. Think with me. Think with me of the implications. It means that God is just. Where would we be if he was not? What hope would we have in this world if we did not know that and have assurance of that? That God is, in fact, just, and there will be an eternal reckoning. And that is a warning to all oppressors in this world, and it is comfort to all the oppressed. That's why it's good news. It's also good news, and this second thing flows from the first, in that it enables us to let go, to lay down the burden we are not meant to carry of vigilante justice. Taking God's cause into our hands as though that's ours to carry. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's not our burden to carry. Ours is to entrust the one who does justly. And that's the only thing that can interrupt the cycle of vengeance and violence in this world. It's the only thing that can interrupt that. Leaving vengeance and justice in his hands. No matter what that may mean. No matter where it is. That, my friends, is good news. The fact that God is coming one day to judge his enemies is a call to rejoice. So rejoice. Let us rejoice. For the day of the Lord is near. That's the first point. Second point is this, and we see this also in this prophecy, the promise, the hope that we have, the assurance that we have of a renewal of his creation, of the natural world, that which you see out those windows, and your own body as well. Joel speaks in poetic language, but he's not just speaking poetry. He's speaking of real things, real events, a real world, the pain that the created order was suffering in that time due to the curse, the consequences upon the people in the land, crops failing, livestock suffering, dying, all of which was tied to the consequences, the curse of that time, but ultimately was traced back to the curse. Genesis 3 that we read of, Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells us in Romans 8, the creation is groaning now, waiting, waiting for all to be made right, this whole cosmic order. And we have the assurance here, the hint here, that it's coming. It was coming in, in a way, even in that time in Joel's day, where relief was being promised. And so much abundance that they, would not be, that they wouldn't have enough storehouses to keep all that was coming. But great as that was, see the parallel with the judgment? Great as that was, it was meant to point towards something else, and even greater, a cosmic restoration and renewal as well. So the point being, moving quickly to application, this world, this stuff, matters to God. If I can be a little succinct, matter matters to Him. He, he cared enough to create it. 
He cares enough to recreate it, to renew it, remake it, renew and re redeem it. What then are the implications for us as his followers, as his people? As the old song says, this is my father's world. We then are called to be stewards. Not to worship it, not to say it's everything, but not to foolishly neglect it as though to say it's nothing. It's something, really something. It's his, and ours is to steward it and steward it well. Again, it's called to rejoice because of the coming renewal of his creation. Well, that takes us to the third point where I want to spend just a few more minutes uh, before we wrap this up. And that, I want to speak here not just to the good news that calls for rejoicing because of the coming judgment on his enemies and the renewal of his creation, but also the reality of his presence with his people. So let's go back and reread Joel 2, verses 28 through 29. That's not the only place you see that here in the text, but it's especially here. Joel 2, verses 28 through 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. And by the way, do you see how that it flows right in with everything else he's been saying about the creation, this pouring, this outpouring, this abundance. And he uses that same kind of language in describing this pouring out of the spirit upon his people. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. How is this good news? Well, let's consider what had been up to this point regarding uh, the Lord's people's experience with the spirit. Up to this point in the Old Testament era, in this point of redemptive history. What it meant was the Spirit would come in that era to certain people to carry out, at certain people at specific times to carry out particular tasks. There was an exclusiveness, you could say, to when and how and to whom the Spirit would come in that era of redemptive history. Moses, however, even Moses in the book of Numbers, we read of his longing for the pervasive presence of God's Spirit with his people. And what Moses is longing for hundreds of years before, Joel is speaking to is coming, and then it comes years later. Joel is the very language that he is using is laying hold of Moses is longing years before. The, the book here, you see again and again and again, there's repetition of this theme of God's presence is being amidst his people, among his people, dwelling with his people. And then you have this prophecy in, in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2 of the fullness of the Spirit. Or as one commentator I was reading this past week put it this way, the democratization of the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting way to put it the democratization of the Holy Spirit. Or, as another uh, scholar put it, all, of, all that God's people would ever need of His Spirit. And for all of them. A completeness, a thoroughness. So that's what had been up to this point. But what was now coming? What was, what was being said was coming and what has now come? Well, Joel is telling us this is not going to be for a select few 
but rather for all without any restrictions whatsoever. The only requirement being believing faith. And with that, the Spirit comes to any and all, young and old, men and women, slave and free, to all. Only requirement is believing trust. And when would this come? Shocking as it may have been to many, it was not going to be something that would just wait until the very end of time, but rather it was to come at the beginning of the last days, which, by the way, are the days we're living in now. The days that were begun, the days that were inaugurated with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That began the era that's known as the last days. My friends, you and I are living, and we have been living for 2,000 years, in the last days. And this is what Peter speaks of in his sermon, right after what Steve read from a little while ago from in the book of Acts, when the Spirit comes on that day of Pentecost. And pre Peter preaches this sermon in that context to correct those crazy people who said, y'all are all drunk. He preaches his sermon to correct all that, correct that, to push back on all that, and to say, no, no, what you are seeing is what was foretold. What you are seeing here at this moment in time, right here in the temple courts, is what was foretold centuries before. Don't you know? Can't you see? Don't you know? Can't you? What does all this then mean? The outpouring has come. We don't have to wait for anything. There's no second, third, fourth blessing. It's when you come to Jesus. You are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. You are His temple. Extraordinary thing. A universal gift for universal ministry as, he, as the Lord is making Himself known to, to all of His people through all of His people. Extraordinary promises made here. That's why this is a call to rejoice. Because of the reality of the presence of the Lord with His people. People, the Spirit has come, and that is great news, important news, such significant news. Some of you are familiar with the name Francis Schaeffer. Lord willing, in a couple weeks, in conjunction with Reformation Sunday, we're going to be talking about the late, great St. Francis, the Protestant St. Francis, that is. Um, yeah, I know. Thank you. I worked on that all week. Um, Francis Schaeffer, among many other things that are worth knowing about the man, and some of you heard me uh, speak on this, uh, went through a terrible time in his life, about midpoint. It wasn't a midlife crisis at all, but it was mid midpoint in his life, basically, in the early 50s, where he really began to question the reality of the Christian faith. And the reason was because he did not see really any spiritual reality as described in the Scriptures in his own heart and in the lives of the, the professing Christians around him, especially reflected in all the infighting. And he could not help but wonder, is this even true? Is this even true? Now, he got through that by God's grace. He brought him through that. 
but he was really wrestling with where is the reality? Where is the reality? And he began to see that the Christian life is far more than just a conversion experience. It is living day by day, moment by moment, by the grace of God in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Christian life is. Now, in wrestling with this, one morning, he said this to his wife, Edith, and it was so clearly formative for her that she quotes this moment in in at least two of her books that I found. And this is how she describes this, this question that Schaefer put to her that morning at the breakfast table. I wonder what would happen to most of our churches and Christian work if we woke up tomorrow morning and everything concerning the reality and work of the Holy Spirit and everything concerning prayer were removed from the Bible. I don't just mean ignored, but actually cut out, disappeared. I wonder how much of a difference it would make. quite a question, isn't it? It's a sobering, startling, grab-you-by-the-lapels-and-shake-you kind of question. We have a question to ask now at this moment, right now. Right now. How would you answer Schaefer's question? If someone did that kind of surgery to your Bible cutting out all the references to the Holy Spirit and to prayer, what would it do? Would it make any difference in your life? It should. It should. It should upend it. it, it, it there is no Christian life at that point. It's just rules. It's just form without substance. It's just a shell. Friends, the Spirit has come. God dwells now with his people. That is cause for rejoicing. Such rejoicing. Oh, that we would have ears to hear. Even Presbyterians that we would have ears to hear of the good news of the coming of the Spirit of God, His indwelling us, each and every one of us, right now. Do Do we have ears to hear this good news? This historical reality, again, that we read of. It took place in the the 33-ish, the first century A.D., the coming of the Spirit. And whenever you came into Christ, that's when the Spirit came into your life. Those are historical realities. Do you know that? You can turn your back on it and pretend like it hasn't happened, but do you want to do that? Do we want to commit that kind of historical revisionism? We don't need to. Can we pray? I want to read to you in this concluding prayer uh, the words of a song. Um, 
and let us serve as our prayer. O come, O come, thou Holy Spirit, light and life thy grace imparts. Blessed source of consolation, guide our minds and fill our hearts. Grant my mind and my affections wisdom, counsel, purity, that I may be ever seeking only that which pleases thee. Savior, lead us to adore thee by the true and living way. Then with angel hosts before thee, may we worship, love, and praise. Dwell within us, precious spirit, where thou art, no ill can come. Bless us now through Jesus' merit. Reign in every heart and home. Holy Spirit, strong and mighty, thou who makest all things new, make thy work within me perfect. Help me by thy word so true. In thy faith, O make me steadfast, let not Satan death or shame of my confidence deprive me. Lord, my refuge is thy name. When my final hour approaches, let my hopes grow yet more bright. Let thy love, which never fails me, dissipate the gloom of night. From that height, which knows no measure, fairer far than voice can tell, in thy glorious courts of heaven, there redeemed by Christ to dwell.